Hello, and welcome back to the Ask Jags podcast. I'm here with Captain Andrew McCaffrey, who is a, a assistant staff judge advocate at McDill Air Force Base. And we're talking to him about his paper that he submitted for the National Security Law Writing Competition that is put on by the Ops and International Law Division here at the Air Force JAG School. This year's topic was how national security law impacts America's strategic competition in the gray zone. Captain McCaffrey's submission was titled The Red, White, and Blue in the Gray Zone and explore some really fascinating topics. Give us just the uh, two to three sentence elevator speech version of your main thesis and illustrations that you used in your paper. Absolutely. What it comes down to, in my opinion, is that the union, the United States, isn't simply a fact, it's a construct. It's something that requires constant maintenance, constant upkeep, and that means legal upkeep as well. And the union is vulnerable to gray zone threats, both foreign and domestic gray zone threats. However, there are tools, legal tools available that have been used in the past and can be used more or have simply been not used and that should be employed for the first time to bolster the nation's security against gray zone threats. Yeah, I think that's really neat. You're, you start off with the uh, the oath of office mentioning how we, we all, many of us in government service and military service, swear to defend this uh, nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I thought it was very cool how you explored this gray zone idea from both ends. Uh, nearly everything I've read so far has been, uh, when it comes to gray zone uh, discussions, has been about foreign threats. And, you know, specifically our our big uh, main competitors in Russia and China. Well, um, yeah, so I think the gray zone, it's a, it's a term used to describe ambiguous competition. And the, the definition that I found and that I included in my paper is, you know, competitive interactions among and within state and non-state actors that fall between the traditional peace and war duality. And so one of the things I really latched onto was that non-state actors bit. And I, th I thought that element of the gray zone definition, read that in light of the oath of office that both military members and civil service members take, kind of triggered this realization that you know, domestic extremism is as much a gray zone threat as anything that our near peer adversaries in Russia and China are doing. Yeah, so starting with the, we'll start foreign like you did in your paper. You focused on Russia and its actions um, against and sometimes with these other Eastern European states. So can you kind of just start with the, the history that you started with um, the last uh, 20 some odd years of uh, Putin and his, his apparent strategies and goals and what he's done about those and then what sort of gray zone activity in there that you've been, that Russia has been engaging in? Yes, sir. So one of the terms that I've used a lot to describe Russia's actions under the Putin regime is hostile interventionism. And that encompasses and includes a lot of gray zone activity. Typically, we see the gray zone activity on the front end, and then it is followed up by more traditional military activity. So I just went through chronologically. Uh, first example I talked about was 
Russian involvement in Georgia in the early part of the 21st century. I remember, you know, when it was uh, 2008, I was watching the news and I saw you know, artillery shelling, and I thought, I never thought I'd see, you know, artillery shelling as something happening in the in the news, you know, amongst um, traditional powers like Russia. But there it was. Um, however, as I delved a little deeper and did some research, you know, the shooting started in 2008. But the conflict, I think, can be traced back to at least November of 2003. November 2003, Georgia was having parliamentary elections. There was a dispute. And again, this is going to be a theme that we see emerging, um, contested elections, rigged elections. And there was unrest, and the Russians took advantage of that situation um, to support the faction that they favored against the faction that the United States favored. So um, that was 2003 escalation in the gray zone continued over the course of several years. Um, for example, in 2006, uh, Georgia arrested four Russian officers on espionage, excuse me, espionage charges. Um, so already, you know, we can see two years ahead of active military hostilities, Russian forces laying the groundwork. Um, of course, the Russians were using their own laws against the Georgians. Um, economic pressures, import bans, forced deportations under dubious circumstances. And ultimately, what we saw was support from the Russians for secessionist forces within Georgia in South Ossetia. And that is when I think the general public started to tune in, pay attention to the situation, and it moved from a gray zone competition to more traditional warfare. Right, and it it seems like a theme. You're going to walk us through some more episodes of this, but it seems like Russia has has now kind of come up with this formula of softening their targets for months or years, with um, especially um, election involvement and influence operations, and then. Uh, like you said, the diplomatic, economic, everything they can, sort of ramping up hostilities to the point where uh, there are a few options left, and and also the cost of them just taking military action have gone down because of their the actions that they've taken to put you know sympathetic people in office and and that sort of thing. So moving on to uh, a country that probably uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and and expose my own ignorance. I didn't know a ton about until the last year or so. Haven't haven't read or heard things about Belarus and what's gone on there nearly as much as I had Georgia and Ukraine. So tell us um, what you uh, what you wrote about Belarus and how that plays into this whole pattern. Sure thing. So uh, Belarus, key strategic location out there in Eastern Europe, and right now key strategic ally for Putin's Russia. Um, you know, you look at the map before the current Russian invasion of Ukraine began. The Russians were marshaling forces within Belarus 
which is of course very close to Kyiv, the Ukrainian cap uh, capital. Um, but fast, or rather, rewinding back to 2020, in August of 2020, Belarus had a fraudulent election in which uh, Lukashenko claimed victory. In the lead up to that 2020 election, the opposition, uh, the main opposition candidate, who was a noted critic of Belarusian ties to Russia, was arrested on charges of organizing mass unrest and inciting social hatred. So this opposition leader, uh, Sikhanuski, he announced his candidacy via YouTube from a prison cell. So um, interesting you know, overlap between new technologies as well in this uh, sort of gray zone arena. Ultimately, however, he was in prison, he was unable to run, and his wife ran for office in his stead, campaigning on the platform of free elections. However, the Lukashenko regime claimed victory in the election, and the United States has officially deemed that that was a rigged election. There were massive protests that made worldwide news, and in response to the protest, the Lukashenko government responded with violent repression and torture of detainees. As of March 2022, Lukashenko regime still had over 1,100 political detainees, and that is obviously a, a disturbing statistic, um, but also disturbing is that Lukashenko reached out to Vladimir Putin for aid on account of this popular unrest. There was a televised address in which Lukashenko characterized the protests that the fraudulent elections he orchestrated as, quote, a threat not to just to Belarus. If Belarusians do not hold out, the wave will head over there too there being Russia. So again, we see this um, patina of legitimacy um, be, being laid to justify gray zone sort of unlawful action and intervention. And later that same day, Lukashenko and Putin had a phone call in which Vladimir Putin reportedly promised, quote, comprehensive help to ensure the security of Belarus. And that led to an extension of $1.5 billion to the Lukashenko government. Yeah, and now, and to this day now, fast forward, now they're pretty uh, faithful allies of most things that Russia wants to do, seemingly, right? Exactly. You know, lay, the, the groundwork was laid back in 2020. The ties were formed and solidified between Russia and one of its neighbors, Russia was able to extend its sphere of influence into Belarus under these very suspect circumstances. But then two years later, 2022, the Putin regime was able to uh, reap the rewards of its, of its efforts, of its planning, and they were able to strategically locate their military assets close to the Ukrainian capital as they were uh, posturing for this unprovoked, unlawful war in which the Ukrainians and Russians are still involved. Yeah, it's crazy. So switching gears uh, just a little bit, we saw – so there's there's a couple examples there, right? So there's um, Georgia and Belarus where Russia attempts to influence elections and or political decision-making with – varying levels of success. And depending on how that goes, they either uh, 
win without having to fire a shot. And now they have a government like Belarus that is, uh, you know, is willing to support them in their endeavors to keep expanding that sphere of influence. Or they have one uh, like Georgia where they end up having, you know, having a little less success politically. So they use military force um, to come in. Uh, similar to the way they did with or and are trying to do with Ukraine. So jumping across the Atlantic now to uh, to the United States, we see uh, at least some version of the first part of that influencing elections over here. Tell us about uh, kind of about that and how you talked about the Russian interference in U.S. elections. Yes, sir. You know, I, I kind of have a, a mental, you know, then then diagram right at the outset we were discussing the domestic gray zone threats and foreign gray zone threats but then there's this you know, very alarming overlap and i think everyone is familiar to some degree or another with the russian interference in the united states elections and this as we've discussed this action of interfering with free and fair elections is nothing new to the russians and they've had success in the past. And so in 2016, they reached out and they interfered in the United States elections. Of course, there was the Mueller investigation. And in my paper, I quote, you know, extensively from it. And it says, you know, unambiguously, Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election. And uh, that is something that we as Americans need to uh, not lose sight of going um, going forward. Right, because <laughs> interestingly, Russia seems to have found a way to win whether their candidate wins or not. Their, if their preferred side can, uh, can gain enough power, then they can have a friendly uh, nation state on the other side. And if their preferred candidate does not, or if there's so much unrest, they, they win by their opponents uh, experiencing large amounts of civil unrest, too. Precisely, precisely. And, um, you know, and just to, uh, you know, to be clear, um, you know, a lot of this is being done on social media. That's one of the primary prongs through which this Russian interference happened. But this isn't just, you know, some individuals here and there who happen to be Russians. Like, this is an orchestrated effort. You know, uh, there's a Federal grand jury has indicted seven Russians, and all of those named defendants are officers in the GRU or the Russian Main Intelligence Directorate. You know, this is this is not an accident. This is a deliberate attempt to undermine the United States government. Right, which is yeah, like you said, pretty pretty scary and something we should probably be keeping our eye on. The fact that there are other competitors who have found ways or are continuing to attempt to find ways to influence the ways that we um, not just think, but actually vote and run our country, which is, you know, one one definition of, of gray zone activity. Exactly. It's that it falls outside the traditional peace war you know, duality, but it's definitely action being conducted by the Russian state to further its strategic goals at the expense of the United States' national security and strategic goals. Right. 
So then the last kind of um, chapter of this Russian influence before we get kind of talking about your uh, uh, the U.S. response is uh, is the the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine that at this moment of recording in June of 22 is uh, is still ongoing. So talk about the I guess the gray zone elements of that and the buildup. Yes, sir. So the the groundwork had been laid in the various conflicts we had already discussed. Um, and then one thing that I wanted to draw attention to in my paper that I think has been overlooked in light of the very you know shocking um, circumstances surrounding the current invasion of Ukraine is the Russian influence and intervention in Kazakhstan in February of 2022, immediately, right on the doorstep of the invasion of Ukraine, Russia deployed so-called, you know, peacekeeping forces to Kazakhstan. And the thing there that I think is a significant difference is that it wasn't a unilateral Russian activity. There were also forces from Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, right? The the CSTO, Regional Alliance, led by Russia, a sort of a, a counter to NATO forces. Um, and so again, we see this patina of legitimacy being used again, but in a more concrete way. The patina is, I don't know, getting, getting thicker and stronger from repeated use. Um, but then with this, you know, current invasion of Ukraine, they were able to posture forces, as we discussed in, in Belarus, and then 24 February, the invasion was launched. And now we turn to the sort of linking this to the the topic of your paper and the topic of the National Security Law Writing Competition, which is all right, the role of US national security law in our strategic competition in the gray zone. So a lot of a lot of examples of what our strategic, this particular strategic competitor is doing in the gray zone and how it is expanding its influence um, over in Eastern Europe and even attempting to here domestically. So what, how would you characterize the U.S. response legally? How has our national security law up to this point confronted this particular threat? Yeah, in my opinion, the U.S. has a very understandable and appropriate goal in preserving peace. But however, that emphasis on preserving peace has had oftentimes the unintended consequence of not providing sufficient assurance to American allies and deterrence to American adversaries. And that and that's the result of, as I described in the paper, you know, leaving some of these tools unused on the table. That applies in both the international examples we've discussed as well as domestic examples. Um, you know, the use of economic sanctions without any kind of proportionate or you know, corresponding increase in direct military aid, or if any kind of direct military aid is given, it is not in an amount that is correlative to the threat American allies overseas are facing. So now, that being said, since I've written this paper, 
things have started to change, uh, and the United States is moving more in the direction that I recommended and described. Um, increased amounts of aid. Uh, notably, there was the NATO summit this this very week, um, where there were some tremendously important announcements made. Uh, I think arguably the biggest one being the announcement of a permanent U.S. installation in, in Poland. Obviously, the you know a Ukrainian border state, uh, a NATO ally that has been in the shadow of Russia for a long time, and by reposturing American forces in this very significant way, I think the United States is going to be able to send a much clearer deterrent message to Russia going forward. I guess really now that they've now that the U.S. and NATO have ratcheted up the response a bit past what it was when you were initially drafting this paper, um, the jury's jury's out now to see what kind of deterrent effect that will have going forward and how how our allies perceive our uh, our willingness to do what's necessary. Exactly. So we're gonna we're gonna loop back around and talk more about more specifics about your kind of uh, policy recommendations and how we could better wield national security law. But first, we're gonna describe the other prong of this threat, the uh, the domestic side of things. And uh, I mentioned earlier, um, this was fairly novel for me, so I'm I'm excited to hear you talk about these gray zone threats that are coming from uh, inside the house, the, uh, the domestic right wing, uh, extremists, the, that's the example you give particularly. And, um, wanted to ask you what sort of like organizations and actions are you getting at here when you're talking about the, uh, these, uh, actors in the gray zone domestically? Yes, sir. So I think there's a line. It's not, it's not a clear line, but between ordinary crime and crime that threatens the Constitution of the United States, crime that is undertaken with a mindset that criminal acts are not wrong, but are in fact rightful and lawful in some abstract, personal, you know, self-righteous sense. Um, and over the years, um, you know, long before the January 6th insurrection, there have been examples of right-wing extremists violating the law, taking hostile actions against the United States government. And again, um, in a parallel fashion to the perhaps underwhelming response to Russian aggression, the response domestically to foreign extremists, or excuse me, uh, to domestic extremists was similarly underwhelming in a way that did not deter future misconduct and what started, as I argue, as arguably minor infractions escalated until we get to January 6th with the national yeah. capital coming under attack. Right. You kind of draw a line from uh, a herd of cows to the attack on the Capitol. And would love for you to kind of start with the uh, the Bundy family and 
and, and their actions and how those sort of meet the definition we've been using of uh, gray zone activity. Yes, sir. So again, uh, citing back to that definition, the gray zone encompasses state actors and non-state actors. And so using that definition, I think the Bundy family and their supporters are exactly the kind of non-state actors that uh, engage in gray zone activity that is detrimental to the United States and its interests. Um, Give us a little background on the Bundy family. Like where, where do they operate? What do they operate? And uh, what do they, I guess, kind of, what are they after? What's their angle? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, this, uh, this goes back, goes back decades. And as you said, it started, started with grazing and some cattle. So um, at, back in the, the 90s, the Bundy family and their associates were illegally grazing their cattle on protected federal land. Right, so that's trespass. Violation of the law, trespass. Um, however, this uh, trespass followed decades of tension, you know, which included pipe bombings at federal offices in the 1990s, threats by extremists against the Bureau of Land Management after the Bureau of Land Management planned to round up the illegally grazing cattle uh, in 2012, and the BLM, you know, the Bureau of Land Management. Know, backed off in response to these extremist threats. Then after further provocation by the Bundys, the BLM decided not to enforce a federal court order it had won against the Bundys, prompting one of the Bundy family to announce, quote, we won the battle. So, I mean, and that I think is a very telling word, you know, not argument, battle, in which these individuals view the United States government as the bad guy. So um, that was the first, I don't know, the first round, if, if you will. Um, and then later on, you know, in light of that tepid response, domestic extremists, you know, learned, I think. And in 2016, a group led by Ammon Bundy began a occupation, an armed occupation of the Federal Wildlife Refuge in Oregon in response to the conviction of Dwight and Steve Hammond who had committed arson on federal property, right? We have these people engaging in retaliatory, hostile acts against the federal government. And this band of extremists, they held that refuge. They held federal territory for 41 days, 41 days. During that time, you know, the administration made multiple attempts to negotiate, but the situation was finally resolved only when one of the extremist leaders was killed while attempting to evade arrest. And so, obviously, we have an obligation to uphold the law, to respect people's due process, but there's also an obligation on members of the civil service, members of law enforcement, to defend the union and defend the, the federal government. Um, and, you know, I think the, the very slow, the very calculated, tepid responses were sending the wrong, the wrong message. Yeah, I get the um, feeling that the, that maybe we as a as a society naively assume most of the time that there's not some faction always willing to uh, to exert their will that is contrary to you know, the 
the will of the union. And anytime our guard is down, they will be attempting to make things go their way through through whatever means they think is, you know, works for their purposes. Some of those being violent, some of those being legal, and some of those, like I said, being illegal things like trespass. But um, this this deterrence ha- is a is a 24/7 mission, and so we saw now, okay, that. They launched this retaliatory occupation, armed occupation of federal property that um, doesn't end for 41 days. And then talk about the kind of the legal criminal fallout uh, from that. Sure, absolutely. So uh, the federal government did respond with legal action, uh, but with not a ton of success. Uh, Ammon and Ryan Bundy and 24 other defendants were charged with conspiracy to impede officers through the use of force, intimidation or threats, and some also faced additional charges of firearm possession and theft of public property. Some defendants entered into plea deals, uh, but there was an acquittal on the conspiracy and firearm charges and a hung jury on property theft offense charged against Ryan Bundy. So this is not the type of accountability that I think is appropriate or necessary in circumstances like this. And uh, on top of it all, um, I mentioned the arsonists whose imprisonment was the, the trigger for this. Those individuals received a presidential pardon in 2018. So not only has there not been convictions when convictions seem appropriate based on all the facts, but people who have been convicted have, have had, you know, have been granted pardons under circumstances that don't appear to uh, warrant them. So then fast forward a few years and in light of uh, viewing that kind of through a transactional lens, that illustrates that the relatively low cost of that sort of operation. And then fast forward a few years, sprinkle in a little of the uh, Russian influence that we talked about back in the sort of the foreign segment of this discussion, and you get to the buildup of January 6th. Kind of tell us why that fits into this conversation. Absolutely. I mean, it's the critical, crucial moment where the, the two fears of gray zone competition against the United States merge together into a unifying front, right, where people who had been influenced by Russian misinformation campaigns and were, you know, further extremized, um, extremized, if that's the appropriate term, uh, in their views, encouraged by the lack of repercussion that they had seen happen for people who had engaged in hostile acts against the government in the past, felt safe to attack the nation's capital. Um, and obviously, you know, I think the January 6th Special Committee is doing incredibly important work of gathering the necessary facts and evidence put in front of the American people to realize just how serious this was. You know, again, this wasn't this wasn't random. This wasn't a, an accident. This was something that had a lead up to it, a lead up that can be traced back to 
prey zone competition on both the domestic and foreign fronts. And that's an important point here that the accountability we hope is still continuing for everyone who was involved in that. Um, but you do talk about what so far has been the legal response to people found to be responsible uh, for the attacks on January 6th. What, uh, what has that been like so far? So um, since, uh, since I wrote the paper, there have actually been some updates on that front as, as well. Um, but at the time I was writing the paper, the response had, you know, the legal response had generally been lackluster, um, in my opinion. One of the examples that I cite was to a famous photo of the individual who was carrying off the speaker's platform. So uh, that individual you know, was not brought up on any kind of federal you know, uh, sedition charges, federal um, in insurrection charges, but on uh, simple trespass. The legal repercussions for Adam Johnson, the individual who infamously posed for a photo while carrying off the Speaker of the House's lectern, he was sentenced to only 75 days in jail for entering and remaining in a restricted area. That's a misdemeanor offense for an individual who participated in an attack on the Capitol building. Such paltry charges don't match the severity of the crime committed, and I think are going to do little to dissuade similar criminal acts in the future. However, since then, um, there have been more robust legal actions taken. Um, and one example that actually can be traced back to as early as January of 2022 was for the leader of the Oath Keepers. Um, and actually this month in June of 2022, the indictment against him was expanded. And even the original indictment included charges under 18 U.S.C. section 2384 for um, you know, conspiracy to commit insurrection. So there is uh, appropriate progress being made at this point, thankfully. Yeah, it sounds like that. That's very interesting to, to hear on both fronts, uh, the developments um, and the challenges of trying to write something that stays relevant <laughs> with, with moving moving targets. Um, so I think this is a uh, it's fascinating. It's it's easy to see. It just I mean I don't know. It's just self evident that when the cost of a certain action is and continues to be low enough then people will engage in that. And I know that's not the only lens that we that we use, but look using that lens, um the this uh, general deterrence kind of idea. Practitioners of military law, you know, specific and general deterrence is something that we're all very familiar with, right? You know, the sentencing factors laid out in the manual for courts martial. Um and obviously that is something unique to the military, but the the underlying concepts have a universal application, and unfortunately, those uh, those factors I don't think have been given proper weight 
in either the international or domestic sphere until, fortunately, uh, recently when we've started to see a shift. Yeah, it does see. Um, so your your examples basically point out, you point to concrete examples of things that have happened um, basically because historically the deterrent effect of our efforts has been too low. And, and now possibly the specific examples that you cite with Russia and January 6th have started to turn the tide a little bit. So let's, let's move into your sort of policy prescriptions. I know we've touched on them a little bit and talked about, you know, some of these updates here, but, but you talk um, in detail in your paper about some ideas you have to update our response to maintain our union by increasing the deterrent effect uh, of our, of our, of our response. So what, um, going back to the foreign idea, what are some of the things you talked about that we could do tools in our tool chest that we could reach for to hopefully have more of an impact? And if there are things, uh, more updates or things that, you know, may, may not even be specifically in your paper, but other ideas along this line, um, so give it, give us those at this point. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll start with the, I think perhaps the most novel um, idea, but in fact the oldest legal tool that I identified in my paper is the letter of mark, right? And this is something spelled out in the Constitution. Letters of mark give private citizens license to engage in reprisals against another nation. Congress has the sole power to issue letters of mark. Now, traditionally, letters of mark were used to authorize capture of enemy ships at sea. Um, right? This is an old tool from you know, uh, older times. But as with everything else in the Constitution and the law, it can be adapted to modern circumstances. At least that's the argument I try to make. Um, I think that such traditional use is even still a viable option. And uh, on February 28, 2022, a bill was put forth in the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Uh, crucially, the text of the bill includes the authority to seize, quote, any yacht, plane, or other asset. Um, and so I think that that final element, the other, any other asset, would allow the United States to, if Congress passes or issues these letters of mark, we have a robust private sector. Think about the, the tech companies and the technology sector. And Congress could issue letters of mark to seize various you know, um, financial assets, you know, digital assets held by people who have been identified as hostile you know, foreign actors. And we wouldn't even need you know, uh, the NSA or some other government actor to do it. Congress has the authority to enable private actors to do this. Um, and so I think that this is a, an old tool that could be put to effective use in these modern times in a way that allows the United States to not cede the gray zone, but rather, you know, fight back in a lawful fashion. Fascinating concept. Just to, to make a point of clarification, this would be completely voluntary on the part of the private actors. We're not talking any kind of commandeering here, right? Uh, yeah, we're not talking about conscripting, uh, conscripting, you know, Alphabet in, or Google into 
doing things, but it would be a license. It would give private actors the ability to do it under the auspices of, of the federal government. Yeah, man, it does seem like um, thinking in the you know digital, financial, technological realm that uh, we could really make some headway at minimal real risk to uh, to the actors. I could see where um, a Carnival Cruise does not want to try to seize a Russian submarine, even if it had the opportunity, but um, like you said, Alphabet using the tools at its disposal to uh, to take assets that, say, Russia is using to host its spot farms. It uh, seems promising. Right, and I mean, of course, you know, this this is not um by no means an easy you know situation overall overall, and there are you know. Um, Concerns about, you know, uh, proportionality um, that would need to be thought out and addressed, and uh, this would need to be done in a very deliberate and thought out fashion. This is not something that should be done willy nilly, but it is, as I said, a lawful option that is on the table. Right, and just there, theoretically, um, in general terms, there's deterrent effect to having options on the table, even if you don't end up needing them very often or use employing them very often, um, increasing the potential cost of an action can have that deterrent effect. So I could see that being um, a consideration too. Yes, exactly. Anything else on this, on the foreign idea, on the addressing these foreign gray zone threats that you, uh, that you've thought about or come up with that we could uh yeah uh, absolutely absolutely and i mean this isn't anything you know i can't claim this as uh an original thought because uh, you know other people have been talking about this too but it, it deserves to be discussed um the so-called budapest memorandum right the 1994 uh, memorandum on security assurances in connection with ukraine's accession to the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons right? and this is something that the United States, Russia, and Ukraine are all a part of, and so is the United Kingdom. The United, uh, Ukraine, as part of this agreement, gave up its nuclear arms, and part of the deal was, was that their sovereignty and territorial integrity would be respected and maintained. That obviously hasn't happened. Now, um, interestingly, Russia has their own international law argument justifying their hostile intervention. Their argument is that in 2014, when the new Ukrainian government came into power, that that government was unconstitutional and therefore the Budapest Memorandum and Russia's obligations thereunder were void. Seems shaky to me, but I think it's important for the United States, the United Kingdom, other parties, not lose sight of this, you know, written international instrument and acknowledge in front of the UN, you know, and, and other channels that Russia has violated its obligations under this agreement. And um, I think that this violation is something that would justify 
direct provision of materiel to the Ukrainian forces. Now, again, that's a policy decision. You know, that's something that would need to be uh, thought out. We need to think about um, what other kinds of liability, you know, that might be exposed in the United States to. But just on the basis of disagreement and the fact that Russia has violated it, I think that the United States could start you know, sending direct aerial assistance. Um, already we've seen, you know, intelligence sharing, and we've seen the positive effects that that's had for Ukrainian uh, self-defense, and that, you know, we can certainly continue in that effort, but we can also do more. Yeah, it does, does sound like there's some some advantages um, to doing that. I'd be interested to see if there are any uh, movements or updates on that front as this conflict uh, continues. Again, we're we're recording at the end of June 2022, and this has been going on for for months now, which has led apparently to some uh, willingness to reconsider the level of aid that uh, the U.S. and other Western nations are providing to Ukraine. Turning now to the domestic, we've talked uh, probably a little bit more. We've already kind of mentioned some of this. But you you had some more specific policy proposals to, um, I guess, in effect, try to convince right-wing extremists and other domestic extremists that it would be a bad idea to get to the point of attacking the U.S. Capitol again to exert your political will. So what are, what are those ideas? So those um... – Matters of uh, federal statute. Um, previously, I mentioned, you know, 18 United States Code Section 2384. Um, that's for seditious conspiracy, and that is the one of the counts that Elmer Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, is facing. But within that section of the United States Code, there are other statutes that I think are viable options. Uh, one of them is the immediately preceding section, uh, section 2383, which states, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years. So these statutes are already on the book, um, and it seems as though you know federal prosecutors are, you know, starting to employ these, and I think that we need, that is something that should be applauded and should be continued. Um, you know, at the, at the time I wrote the paper, over 725 people had been arrested and charged with offenses relating to uh, January 6th. But as I discussed in the case of Adam Johnson, a lot of these charges are for misdemeanors. And that just does not seem to be appropriate indictment for the severity of the offense. Fortunately, you see that we are seeing a, a shift in these statutes that fit. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the jury, you know, the fact finders will find whatever they find. But based on the evidence available, these statutes seem to be the appropriate vehicles for ensuring that justice is done punishment is imposed on these wrongdoers and that, as we keep discussing, an appropriate deterrent message is sent going forward so that we don't face something like this 2024 
or ever again in the United States. Yeah, certainly a worthwhile goal. Now that we've talked through your uh, your ideas, your identifying of a couple of um, indisputable issues that that the United States faces, foreign and domestic, and then your your kind of proposals for their uh, to possibly uh, experience them less going forward. Um, give us a kind of a wrap up final parting thoughts uh, from your side, Captain McCaffrey. Yes, sir. So I think the big takeaway that I wanted to leave people with is that anyone can act against the United States in the gray zone. And that has been happening in both the domestic and the foreign spheres. And most troublingly, that has happened in a synergistic way. Right? Foreign actors have taken advantage of domestic actors. And whether, you know, intentionally or not, these hostile domestic and hostile foreign forces wind up working in unison. Therefore, there needs to be a uniform response, right? And members of the military, members of the civil service, you know, civilian law enforcement all need to consider that oath that they took to protect the Constitution and defend the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That needs to happen in a lawful way that respects people's civil rights and due process. But just because people's civil rights and due process are being respected does not mean that there should not be zealous advocacy, right? The zealous defense and upholding of our Constitution and the laws enacted by we the people and Congress thereunder. Hear, hear. I uh, appreciate your willingness to talk to us about this today. Thank you for your time and your expertise and uh, educating us a little bit. Uh, we really enjoyed your paper. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks. Thanks.